Thanks to Sana Skin Studio for supporting the No Podcast. Sana is a skin studio that is shifting the relationship with your skin and your products through goal-driven facials, real guidance, and clean skincare. Stay tuned for our promo code so you can receive $25 off of your first facial at Sana Skin Studio. Welcome to the No Podcast with me, Nikki Spo. What is up, truth speakers and light seekers? You are listening to The Know, where it is not about knowing everything. It's about coming to know ourselves. Today, we are tapping into another episode within an episode. It's a lot of fun to be on the other side of the questions, and I'm excited to let you guys get a glimpse of me being interviewed. I recently had the privilege of being hosted on one of my former guests' podcast, The Mindful Corner Podcast by Dr. Erica Velez, who I interviewed in episode 101 of The Know. With Dr. Velez's permission, I am sharing our recording with my audience. And in this episode, I open up about my sobriety, finding hope and forgiving myself. And it is my hope that Dr. Velez and I can help even just one person by sharing this. I hope you enjoy our conversation and I want to encourage you to check out the Mindful Corner podcast by Dr. Erica Velez on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's go. Welcome back to the Mindful Corner podcast. This is your host, Dr. Erica Velez, and today I'm so excited to have Nikki here join us. Nikki, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Velez, thank you so much for having me. I'm like really excited to be here and hopefully share my experience, strength and hope with your audience and through the power of storytelling, right? Yeah, that's the whole premise of the show, right? Is to share our experiences with the hopes that someone out there is listening can relate and can draw something from these stories. So I'll let you take it from here. Tell us a little bit about you and tell us about the story you want to share today. Well, I think like I want to start off by saying like, I think a lot of our stories are drastically different, right? In the way that they sound, but I think that a lot of the feelings are the same. I think that we're all like searching for, for something. Um, I personally, on my own podcast, I call it like the inner knowing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us are trying to come home to ourselves and the journeys that we've been through, like the struggles that we've been through, the trials and tribulations of our lives, like have shaped us in such a way in which like we are searching for that feeling of like coming home and being safe within our own minds and bodies. And I felt really unsafe in my own mind and body for a long, long, long time. And I grew up here in Miami, born and raised, grew up in Kendall. I went to public schools my whole life. Um, I'm an only child. I don't have any brothers or sisters. And for context of like, how I grew up, you know, middle working class family. My mom was mostly a stay-at-home mom and a substitute teacher. And my dad was a firefighter. So there was addiction in my upbringing. My mom was an addict. She was an alcoholic and, you know, she used pills and that was a reckoning for her. Like, I remember there being a very significant turning point. My mom lost her job when I was about four years old. And I don't know that she ever, like, I feel like that like crushed her soul and she lost her identity and and turned to coping with the use of alcohol. Um, I've always been really mindful about that, like how I identify myself and trying not to like put all of my identity into one specific thing, which I will actually like come back to in a full circle moment, like later on in the story. But I generally felt very happy in my childhood, um, but I, I definitely knew that something was wrong, like that that things with my mom weren't right. Um, and I built an anger and a resentment, I think, towards authority in general. Um, 
I felt like the adults in my life weren't necessarily safe. And that is that my father is a great individual. Like he's a really good person, but like for what it's worth, like he was busy working for our family. He was at the fire department overnight sometimes. Right. So like there was a big part of me that was like, I have to take care of my mom. I have to lock up my house. I have to feed myself dinner. Like I don't have respect for your authority in my life when I'm a child playing the role of an adult. Mm-hmm. Parentified. Right. right. I've, I've, I'm now like stepping into a parent role as a child and that should not be res- my responsibility mm-hmm. while my dad is away. And then my dad was away, but he wasn't seeing what was going on like behind the scenes when he wasn't there. And so I developed like a weird, not, I don't think it's weird. I actually think it's like, like kind of normal for me to do this is like, I am an independent child mm-hmm. and I, you can't really give me rules right. because I don't really respect your rules because you don't care for me. Not that they don't care about me. Not that they don't love me. I think that my parents loved me in the best way that they knew how, even my mom, as she struggled with addiction, I think that she loved me in the best way that she knew how. And, you know, I have a history of childhood sexual abuse in my life. And that took a long time for me to even say out loud. I didn't say that. I didn't recover those memories until I was 27 years old. And there's a bunch of statistics that I'm sure you know that like, Mm -hmm. there's like, and there's laws that people, attorneys are trying to change and lawmakers are trying to change so that like when you come out doesn't impact what happens when you, when you do like, like how old you are, when you recover, whenever you choose to speak up, doesn't impact the validity of your claim. Of course. Cause like many, you know? it takes years to it really... takes years. And, and especially in men who I think men in general are taught like to push these feelings down and not talk about these things, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's like, that's a whole other topic of conversation, but like, that is part of my history, my personal history. And I think that it affected a lot of my life thereafter, meaning like, as I became a teenager, um, I was always seeking attention. I found an escape through dance. Like I was the first person after school at the dance studio. I was the last one to leave. They're like locking up the doors. They're saying, Nikki, you got to go home. But like, I, it was better for me to be over there doing like dance, practicing dance than to be in my home, you know? And so I learned, um, a great deal of escapism in that part, that time of my life. And I wasn't like drinking or using at that point yet, which, you know, I came, I currently identify as an alcoholic and that's part of the journey of how I came to cope with all of my big feelings over a period of time. And I think a lot of people wonder if it's like chemical or if it's environmental. And I think that it's a lot of it is both. Mm-hmm. personally. Um, but back then, like dance was my drug, right? Like that was my drug of choice. I poured my whole life, my whole heart into it and nothing really else mattered. But I also was a teenager and I experimented and I experimented with older people a lot. Like, and, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work with a trauma psychologist who we've worked through this in a way that I was trying to take control over my sexuality mm-hmm. when that had been taken from me at a very young age. Mm-hmm. So in my own indirect way, I was like saying, no, I'm going to do this on my terms. Even if it's inappropriate, I'm still going to do this on my terms. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be somehow be empowered by this. Like in hindsight, I see it a lot different, 
But like, I can see how that, how my teenage self was like doing that to like take some of my own power, power back. Yeah. 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 Like definitely like saying like, I'm going to do this. Like, and it's going to be on my terms, not on your terms, my, like my terms. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved on. I, I danced for the Miami heat after high school. Didn't want to be a Miami heat dancer. Didn't care to be a Miami heat dancer. I thought like, honestly, I thought they were like, mm-hmm. like silly dancers. I didn't think that's like professional sports dance teams were like legit. Like now they're like, it's, I have a totally mm-hmm. different perspective of it. I've judged their auditions. Like these women are so talented, so smart, so capable, so multifaceted. Um, but at the time when I'm in high school, I'm like, I'm a real dancer. Like, I'm not going to shake up my pom-poms, you know, <laughs> at these sports games. I didn't care about sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tried out and I made the team and I was like, me, you want me? Um, at the time I had um, gotten kicked out of my house. My dad, um, my parents got divorced when I was 18 due to my mom's alcoholism. And um, my parents separated. And can I pause you there? How was that? Because I find that what I find is that sometimes parents wait until the child is 18. And it's kind of like, okay, now you're 18. You know, I don't have to put up with your your dad or your mom. And they go their separate ways. Oh. And sometimes parents think that's easier. But what was your case? So I was begging them to get a divorce for a long time. Okay. Like, like I mentioned, like my dad didn't see a lot of the really, really bad stuff that happened between me and my mom. And my mom passed away last year and I've had to have like my own like healing experience with her passing and like come to terms and have like find my peace with her, like as she has passed on and everything. But like, nobody was helping my mom, mm-hmm. you know, like, and I, Today, like I see it, I look back and I'm like, I think dad, you could have done something more to help her. You know, like you were her husband, like you made a vow to her, like you should have done that. But at the time I was so angry and resentful at my mom for being the way that she was that I was just like, like, I can't live like this. Like I was a really grown, mature child who was very used to taking care of herself. And I'm like, I can't live in this insanity right? Mm-hmm. So I would beg my dad all the time. I'm like, please leave her, like leave her. I, or I need to go. Like, I can't be, I can't live here. Remember, I don't have brothers or sisters to like bounce these things off or make, make my own little like team with. It was just me and them. Mm-hmm. So when I was 18, my mom got a DUI and like was mandated to go to a rehabilitation center. And I think that was the last straw for my dad, mm-hmm. which I think is really sad because like, that was like the first time she had ever gotten help. And as an addict myself, like I know that it doesn't always happen on the first try and it takes a lot of love and compassion from your loved ones, like to actually help you through a place when you want to get help. And I do believe that like the individual has to want it for themselves because you can't want it enough for anybody else. But I also don't think that like there was enough, I just don't think that my mom had any, any real support, you know? So they went their separate ways. I was relieved So I went on to live with my dad. I was like, great. She's crazy. I don't have to live with her. Like she can drink herself to death if she needs to. Like, I can't do it anymore. I'm working. I'm working as a Miami dancer and I work teaching dance, dance classes. And my dad meets his second wife and it was like, okay, you're eight. She's 18. Your daughter's 18. Like she needs to move out of the house. I'm going to move in and I'm going to move my daughter in. So next thing I know, like I'm looking for an apartment. I have no money. And basically my dad was like, you're going to be financially independent. So that was a really scary time for me. Like, because I think that like, I looked at my dad as my protector and 
my dad was like, if there was an advocate in my life, like he was the closest thing to it. And here he was like moving me out and bringing another family in and then telling me to be financially independent. I'm like, I don't have any money to be financially independent. Like what am mm-hmm. I supposed to do? So I got three jobs. I like, I was a heat dancer. I worked at, I taught nighttime dance classes to kids. I worked at a high-end um, retail boutique and I danced at like live and cameo and all these nightclubs. And so I was in nightlife, you know, like I was this, and this is what we're, this is very common for working dancers to do. Like they like, mm-hmm. I mean, this is very like, it's appropriate. You're wearing clothes. Like this is like feathers and go-go dancing at like live space mansion mm-hmm. cameo, you know, like back in the day, Miami. And it was fun. Like I did it with all my friends. It was fun, but it was a lot of work. I was a full-time student. I was paying my own tuition. I was paying my rent. I lived in a literal closet that I paid 400 bucks a month to live in, like completely supporting myself. My dad was in a space where he's like, I don't think you should go to college. I'm like, what? He's like, I don't think you should go to college. And that's not to say that everybody should go to college. Like I am not that person who's like, everybody needs to go to college. I don't think so. Um, But I was like really angry that my dad, he was like, you should just go like, go work at a restaurant and be, you know, you're cute and you can do these things. And like, you know, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Don't go to school. You don't need to go to school. Like that was the energy of, of the message that I got, whether, you know, whether he thinks that he said that or not, like that was the message I received. Yeah. I like that you draw that distinction, right? Because I think it's important, Dr. Velez. Like, I do think it's important because like, and something that I still argue with my dad till to this day is like the way your adult person experienced something Versus my child version of myself that experienced the same thing mm-hmm. can be very different. Mm-hmm. And so often we hear this dynamic where adult children are, you know, pointing out these things to their parents and, and they feel gaslit by their parents because their parents are like, oh, that yeah. didn't happen that way. You're imagining yeah. that. That's not how it happened. You didn't see it that way. I'm like, I was a child. I saw it how I saw it. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of built up resentment. I went on, I went on to study art history. I got my bachelor's degree in art history. I graduated at the top of my class in the art history program. Like in my mind, like against a lot of odds, right? Like I'm working my ass off. I wound up saving a lot of money. Um, I was like, I'm never going to be in this position again. And, um, I wasn't, I was always in a position. I put myself in a position to enjoy the work that I did. And if I didn't like a job that I was doing, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. And I had enough money to like carry me until I found a job that made me happy and fulfilled and feel safe. And so I moved to California and I worked as an art dealer and I made good money doing that. Um, And during this time, I'm not talking to either of my parents. And I felt very alone in the world with the exception of like my friends. And I really have a beautiful sisterhood of women that really are like sisters to me and they're my chosen family and we've really shown up for each other. And it's been really beautiful to see like through the years, how our friendships have like grown and shifted and changed. And it's just, it's really been an amazing thing that I'm so grateful to have had these deep, meaningful relationships. And it wasn't until, so I got married in 2016 and I think looking back, I always knew that I was an alcoholic. Um, the first time I drank, I drank to get hammered. Like I had these huge feelings, Dr. Velez. Like I had, I grew up just with these big feelings, big feelings of anger and resentment for, because of my circumstances, Of course, but also like the, like the euphorial type of joy that would come from being on stage and performing and like, there's just like the magic of dance the way that I experienced it. And 
that was, those feelings were a lot for me to manage and like find a balance between. Mm -hmm. And so when I started drinking in high school, I would drink and I would drink to get drunk and everybody in my circle was doing that. So it all seemed very normal, you know, and like my mom was doing that. So that seemed also very normal, even though like on some level, I knew that it wasn't, um, you know, going through my twenties, going through college, living out in Los Angeles. Like I partied, I like, I had a lot of fun, you know, like I drank to cope. I drank, you know, to escape. I drank to be more fun at the party. I drank to like loosen up, like all of the reasons, you know? And I never thought that I had, like, I never at the time thought that I had an issue. Um, I get married in 2016. He travels a lot for work. I was alone a lot. And I remember thinking I had, I got, had gotten a DUI back in like 2009 or something like that. I don't, I don't remember what year, but it had been a while ago. That wasn't a red flag for me. I wasn't like, that wasn't enough. Like I was like, oh no, everybody drinks and drives. Like I just, I just got caught. Like who doesn't do this? Right. And that was what my circle was like. I didn't think, I truly did not think anything, anything of it. And then when I got married, I started caring, like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't get in trouble. This would be bad. Like, this would be bad for my public image. This would be bad. Like, it wasn't like I could die if I drink and drive. Like, it was, this would look really bad if I got caught doing something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and I was, I really cared a lot about, like, what my spouse would look like. Like, that it would affect his image, too. And so, I would start to drink at home by myself. Like, I began isolating and drinking at home. And I, we got, I got pregnant, had my first baby. I wasn't, I didn't drink at all throughout the pregnancy. I haven't drank through any of my pregnancies, but like one of the things that I think about when it comes to alcoholism is like, I remember being tortured by not drinking. Mm -hmm. Like I remember being like, I hate being pregnant because I can't drink. I hate being pregnant because I can't drink. Like when can I have a drink? People are like, you can have a tiny glass of wine. I'm like, that's torture. Who wants a tiny glass of wine? I want two bottles of wine, mm-hmm. right? I have my son. I finish breastfeeding. I'm like, great, I can start drinking. And I go all in on the drinking. And I'm isolating and drinking. And I'm inviting friends over who can only drink like me, right? Like, I don't want, if you drink a, a glass of wine, you know, I don't want you to run my house. Like, I want you, like, if you're going to get smashed like I am, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, and I was fortunate that I had like 24 seven childcare, mm-hmm. which was very enabling you know, like me being alone all the time, like was very enabling. It was very lonely. There were so many factors. Like there's so many things. Ultimately- I, can I, can I add one, one that yeah. you may relate to, um, as a millennial, we, we have grown up in mommy wine culture that has oh, normalized gosh, doing this where I felt like know. it gave me permission. Exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, mommy needs a glass of wine because, and there was some legitimacy to that, right? Like I'm like all day with like a, like my baby and like, sure I had help, but I'm like also parenting alone a lot, like in the sense that like my spouse wasn't with me, Mm -hmm. you know, and not at his fault. Like it, like my dad, in a lot of ways, he was out, he's out supporting our family, like earning money so that Mm -hmm. we can do something he loves so that he can support us. Great. Yeah. I'm still alone doing it. I'm still like without my partner. I'm still having to make decisions on the fly. I'm still drastically overwhelmed at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what? It's my ritual to go out and have a glass of wine, which turned into two, three, four, so on and so forth. And so mommy wine culture definitely enabled me. Mm-hmm. 
I'm like, this is what moms do. It's a slippery slope. Yeah. It's a slippery thing. slope. And I hate seeing it online because I'm mm-hmm. like, mommy does not need a glass of wine to cope. Mommy yeah. needs a, a break. It truly, it truly makes me cringe because although again, while I get it, it is a way to cope. If we don't have other healthy coping skills or look at the source of the problem, maybe there are some things that I don't necessarily have to cope with. I actually have to try to change and ask for help. Right. Yeah. Um, rather than exactly. powering through using substances. So you know, I, I'm, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but, you know, it is something that I think we are slowly coming into like social awareness. awareness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This conversation is so good. But before we keep going, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Sana Skin Studio. The best way for me to describe Sana is that it feels like coming home. Unlike traditional facials, Sana's facials are rooted in education. And I love this so much. Every experience I've had at Sana has been a chance to learn more about my skin and its needs. I love that the facials are effective while also being accessible enough to be a monthly ritual rather than a yearly splurge. I'm honored to be able to provide our audience with a promo code. Use the code THENOGLOW for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via sanaskinstudio.com. Fast forward to to today, I am three years sober. I have um, April 18th of 2020 was my sobriety, is my sobriety date. Um, I got sober during COVID, which thank God, because like if I had not hit my rock bottom, like if COVID hadn't happened, I probably would have carried on because like, honestly, there was nowhere to hide during COVID. Uh Like That's so interesting. I I, I actually found that the the substance abuse rate skyrocketed. So it's so interesting. How did that happen for you? How did that, how did you just make that decision? I think it did happen for me, right? Like I found myself being a lot more secretive about my alcohol intake, right? Because my spouse was home all the time. Mm. So I would like hide a bottle of wine in my closet or I'd hide one in like the laundry room. So like we'd be around during the day, but I'd literally like be able to like be like, oh, I'll be right back. I'm gonna go to the closet, my closet to go organize things. And I'd be like drinking wine in my closet, Mm -hmm. like, but hiding it, right? Mm -hmm. And being like being secretive about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big telltale Mm -hmm. right and so it got to a point where it got like there was nowhere to hide from it I hit my personal rock bottom I had the worst night of my life which is a sacred night for me that I don't share with a lot of people um and and I say to sober people and you hear it all the time in like programs like it doesn't matter what your rock bottom looked like you could have a rock bottom in like on the floor of your penthouse apartment in the middle of Manhattan or you could have your rock bottom underneath a bridge, you know, homeless, mm-hmm. like your rock bottom is your rock bottom, whatever right. it takes to make you say, I have to make a change in my life, your personal limit, you reached it, yeah. you reached your personal limit. So that was that day I, um, I had been friends with a sober woman. And I didn't know who else to call. So I called her and she was like, do you believe that you are powerless over alcohol and that your life has become unmanageable? I'm like, my life is not unmanageable. I live in this beautiful house. I have a husband. I have a kid. I have a this. I have mm-hmm. a that. And she's like, no, like, well, what about your emotional life? Like, sure, you haven't lost your marriage. You haven't lost a job. You don't have a job. You don't like, like, you don't have to work. Like, but what about your internal life? I'm like, I want to die. She's like, that's unmanageability. Like, that is unmanageable. The fact that you do not want to live is unmanageable. Your life is unmanageable. You find your life so unmanageable that you think you don't deserve a place on this planet. And that's not to say that I wanted to kill myself because I did not want to kill myself. Mm -hmm. I wanted to like disappear. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to go away. I wanted it to stop. So that was the beginning of my journey. Um, 
I came to a place where I was able to admit to myself and to another human being that like, I was powerless over alcohol and that my life had become unmanageable. And I was able to continue through a 12 step program and thank God and thank, thank God that I have people in my life who support me and are on this sobriety journey with me that I've like stayed sober for these years. And I've made so many amazing, beautiful life changes and done a lot of the bulk of the healing work during this time. Um, people, a lot of times will ask me, well, how do you know if you're an alcoholic? And I always say like, it's a self-diagnosed disease, if you will. You know, I think that there's a big stigma around alcoholism, but I don't think it's really that. I don't think it should be. Like if you have somebody who's like diabetic you're and you're like, hey, you should have all these candy bars. And they're like, no, I'm diabetic. You're like, okay, that makes sense. Like moving on. Mm-hmm. But like with alcoholism, you could be like, Hey, how, why aren't you drinking? Why aren't you drinking? You should drink. You should drink. Oh, come on. Come on. It's only one. No, you, I'm like, Oh no, I drink too much. I don't want to drink tonight. No, no, just one, just one, just one. I'm like, no, I'm an alcoholic. Oh, really? You can't just have one. I'm like, no, I cannot just have one. Mm-hmm. I can't like, leave it at that. Just the same way a diabetic should not be eating blah, 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 or like whatever other disease mm-hmm. need, which would require you to not like eat peanuts. If you have an allergy to peanuts, yeah, I have an allergy to alcohol. The, and, and that's not to say like, I'm allergic. I'm going to break out in hives. No, I, I get it. Allergy yeah. in the sense that like, there's consequences. The way that my body responds to alcohol is not acceptable or healthy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always encourage people to consider their relationship with alcohol because there's so many people that are sober curious these days, yes. you know, and in mommy wine, wine, wine culture, like we're seeing that a lot more women are curious about their relationship with alcohol, not necessarily saying, Oh, I think I'm an alcoholic, but like, let me look at this. Let mm-hmm. me look at this. And so my, my biggest piece of advice to people who are sober curious is to like, try some controlled drinking. What does controlled drinking look like? If you're used to going out or like, let's say after the day is done, you're used to having two cocktails or whatever after your kids go to bed. And maybe you do this with your partner. Maybe you do this by yourself. Maybe you do this like over a conversation on the phone with your girlfriends, whatever. Mm -hmm. What if you said to yourself, I'm not going to have two. I'm going to have one tonight. How do you feel? Just observe. Don't judge. Don't anything. Just how does that make you feel? For me, I was like, that's torture. I want another, I want another, I want another, I want another, I want another. There was like an obsession. I want another, I want another. Mm-hmm. Like even the nights I remember going out with my, with my spouse, then like we'd go to dinner and I'd be like, I gotta, I gotta rein it in tonight. Mm-hmm. gotta not drink. Cause like he's in town and I'm not going to drink tonight. So I'd have a glass of wine at dinner and I'd be like, okay, that's my cutoff. But like inside I was like miserable. Yeah. Restricted. Like, not even enjoying my time with him because I was like, all consumed yeah all consumed consumed by this idea that like I needed to have another glass of wine Mm -hmm. today I am I live freely from that like wine and drink and alcohol doesn't cross my mind like because of the work that I've done Mm -hmm. you know and every day day in and day out people say it's one day at a time it really is one day at a time because like there are times where I think to myself I have three small children like Mm -hmm. I'm what I'm never going to be able to like have a t- champagne toast at my kid's wedding or like celebrating when their baby is born or wh- you know, whatever, all these future things. Mm-hmm. And the, f- like, if I think of my life in those terms, like mm-hmm. that seems like 
undoable. It's like an, un, it's an unparalleled mountain to climb. Like, how am I going to climb a mountain of my whole life? And that's where like, I really, really, Dr. Velez have to like stay present and be like, you know what? I'm not going to drink right now. Yeah. How about that? Like right this second, I'm not going to go get a drink. Yeah. And that's all you have control over really. Like, and sometimes it's like 20 minute blocks, right? Yeah. I'm like, just yeah. don't drink for 20 minutes. And like, that's hard for people to get through mm-hmm. an addiction, you know, but eventually like you get through it and the feeling passes and hopefully like you're instilling better ways, whether that's writing, whether that's praying, whether that's getting on the phone with another sober person to help you like work through whatever problem you're facing. You know, like I still have a need Dr. Vibella is to escape. I've been escaping since I was a child. Like I said, through dance and through everything else. Right. Mm -hmm. Like life gets hard. You know, last year I was, I had found out I was pregnant my mother immediately died right afterwards. And I found out that my four-year-old, my then four-year-old was diagnosed with cancer. And it was one of the most difficult years of my life. And I stayed sober through it because like, even though those things were so difficult, hating myself every day that I was in active alcoholism was harder. And I, and I know actually on a soul level that it's because of my sobriety that I was able to like face those obstacles with a presence of mind Mm. and like the most care and bring the most joy and light as possible to a really, really difficult slew of events Mm -hmm. in a short period of time. And, um, I really do think that that has a lot to do with my sobriety. I feel like I know who I am because of my sobriety. I did not know who I was when I was drinking um, I was able to start my business in my sobriety, my own podcast, like where I've, I feel like I'm helping hundreds of thousands of people. Like, and I used to think, who am I to have this voice? I used to hate myself so much, Dr. Velez, that like, and I used to feel so much shame over my drinking and over the choices I've made in my life and over like the things that I've endured, like even the sexual mm-hmm. abuse that I blame myself or like, I blame myself for all these other things. Right. Mm-hmm. I was able to really like Forgive myself. And I think that I'm still forgiving myself every day. But like my need to escape is not as great. And when it shows up, I'm able to process it in a much, much healthier way. You know, like I can say, I can like take an objective look at it and it's not an automatic reach for something outside of myself. Like Mm. I have so much more internal peace because of that. And it's not just that I've worked a 12 step program. You know, I go to a therapist weekly. I was like, going to ask you that, like, how, how, what tools again, how did you get there? I mean, honestly, like being part of a 12 step program is one of those amazing experiences I've ever partaken in, in my life. Like, I truly think that like a 12 step program benefits literally anyone. I'm like, everybody should do this because it teaches us about like reflection and respect and like owning my side of the street, owning my part in a, in a shitty situation, like being able to assess any resentments that I have so that I can let go of resentments, like apologizing for the things that I've done wrong. It is so, you have to actually like apologize to people that you've harmed in your life. Like Mm -hmm. that, the level of humility that a a 12 step program requires is like otherworldly. And I think it brings people a really big sense of compassion. And so I've been in therapy since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Therapy wasn't helping my alcohol intake. I actually remember doing being in DBT therapy and there would be like a questionnaire 
about like how your alcohol intake, like I had to do this whole filled out. Like, did I feel like this? Did I feel like mm. that? Did I feel like this? Did you exercise today? Did you take your medication? Did you do this? Do you do that? Did you drink today? And I would lie on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's only going to reach you as, as much as you're willing to be truthful. Exactly. Sometimes we're just not ready. Yeah. I wasn't ready. I was lying. I was lying. The therapy wasn't helping me with my alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Speaking with other alcoholics helped me with my alcoholism. Mm -hmm. again like you mentioned this in the beginning of your intro it's like having a community of people mm -hmm. seeing people that looked like me because I had this idea that alcoholics are like toothless people under the bridge only mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you know like the like you think about an alcoholic and your mind immediately goes to like the bottom of the barrel like the complete bottom and it's like the same thing we do this with everything we, we do this with women who yeah. get Botox we think about like people who get like <laughs> Botox and filler and we think about worst case scenario of like how mm -hmm. you can look like a total mm -hmm. cat or whatever mm -hmm. like when there's there's like a middle area there's mm -hmm. doctors teachers lawyers professionals mothers fathers like yeah it's across ses are yeah. suffering from alcoholism and they might be functioning 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 highly mm -hmm. or they may not external like externally like, externally like you look at my life and yeah. you're like this bitch has it made mm-hmm like, you don't know that I hate myself internally. What was happening? And that yeah. I hate myself. Mm -hmm. That is unmanageable. Mm -hmm. And today I don't hate myself. So I feel like I'm winning at life because mm -hmm. I, I have a deep sense of like self-love. I have a deep sense of connection to source, which is my higher power that I believe in. Like mm -hmm. I believe in doing the work. I believe in showing up. I believe in admitting when I'm wrong, even though that that's hard to do sometimes because mm -hmm. I don't like to be wrong. I don't like it. I don't like to be wrong. Mm -hmm. Like who does? You but know? again, that, that could come from, you know, like you mentioned when you were a child where you needed to, you, you felt unsafe and you relied on yourself being right in order to keep yourself safe. So right. you have a strong attachment to that need. And again, when we look back at why we created these ways to cope, we need to remember that we were just trying to survive, right? right? And now are we still in that stage? Are you still trying to survive? And if that's no longer the case, now I'm a full grown adult, I have autonomy, I am safe. Do I need to look at my coping skills and question whether I need to readjust them? Do I still need to be living in survival? Or is it time to readjust and say, okay, what do I need now instead of to survive to actually thrive? And also like forgive, like, I need to forgive myself that the things yeah. that for the things that I did when I was in a survival mode, yeah. because I hurt people. I hurt myself. I said things. I allowed myself to be disrespected in ways that like are not like on a soul level hurt me. Mm -hmm. Like I have to every, and that's probably the harder thing about living in sobriety is that every day I have to wake up and I have to forgive myself for the ways that like the things that I did when I was in survival mode. And there are still times Dr. Velez that I am still in survival mode because these things have been programmed into my brain from such a, we are programmed, right. Yeah. Of our life views from the time that we're, we're born, yeah. you know? And so like unprogramming that and retraining yourself to learn a different way to look at things that takes time and effort and it's hard work. So I want to shout out anybody who's listening that is like, doing the work is curious. Even if you're curious about doing the work, I think like your mind is in the right space because like even your curiosity is a, a sign. sign. It's is a sign. sign. Mm -hmm. And so I'm grateful. I'm really grateful. A lot of people like, 
you know, there's, again, there's a stigma about alcoholism. I'm grateful. Like, I don't want to say that I'm like grateful that I'm an alcoholic, but I'm grateful that I was able to like, I'm able to come to terms with my alcoholism so that I can grow and heal and hopefully help other people who are sick and suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. I see that like the Phoenix, you know, rises from the ashes and alchemizes their story, uses it, turns that pain into some type of purpose. At least that's what I'm gathering from you. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. That it's somehow... I, I was going to ask you, are you proud of yourself? I am very proud of myself. You should be. I think that like pride is like a funny thing, but like, I am proud of myself. Yeah. Like if little me could, I, it like brings me to tears sometimes. Like I think yeah. if little me could see me now. You've been hustling for a long time. I've been hustling for a long time. Like, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm really humbled and I'm grateful and I'm proud And I like oftentimes find myself like giving a virtual hug to like the younger version of me who was so scared Mm -hmm. and so, so like lacking in hope and belief Mm -hmm. and wondering how my life was going to turn out. And I'm like, I look around my, and then not just like the things that I have, because those are just things, but like on a soul level of like who I am and the friendships that I have and the relationships that I have in my life and the way that I'm able to show up as a parent. And I feel really proud of myself. Mm -hmm. It should be. It should be. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I know it's it's going to touch, to. it's going to touch who needs to hear it. And um and hopefully, you know, they can draw what they need to draw from it. I always say there's no coincidences. So if you're listening and something inside you is saying, mm-hmm. This is my call to action, I hope that you answer. So Nikki, at the end of the show, I always ask my guests, given the experiences that you've had, what would you say you know for sure to be true? Um, so this is kind of like a deep thing. I read, I read this book by, um, Martha Beck and it's called the way of integrity. And something she discusses in the book is that the one thing that we know to be true is that nothing is true. (laughs) Not that like change, right? Like a lot of people are like change is the only thing that is consistent. And I believe that too. I think the only thing that is true that I, is that I don't know what is or is not true Mm -hmm. except for like this one moment. Mm -hmm. So stay curious, right? Stay curious about about what could be of life. Did you plan for life to go this way for you? Was there moments where you thought it would never be this way? I don't think I planned any of this. <laughs> That's why you just got to, you know, part of the plot. You have to stay curious and and open to um, the, the, the discovery of our inner strengths, right? What sometimes like, again, another recurrent theme that I hear in your message is this coming back to self, right? Where one could argue many years you were running away, running away, running away. Yeah. And now you're able to just come back to self. And there's a piece there. And and it, it doesn't mean it's easy, but there's a piece that comes with, now I know thyself and I'm still learning about myself. And at least I'm not running away from myself, even when I want to, because that, yeah. again, that desire to escape is going to, it's going to, but it's also a sign to say something is not right this feeling that makes me want to run away means I need to quickly recalibrate. What do I need? And by the way, sometimes it's, I just need water. Right. <laughs> to eat. I need some peace. I need to make time for joy, but tuning in and saying, instead of running away, what do I do with what? What is this signaling to me? And, um, and well, it's information. It do. Yeah. yeah. It's information and showing ourselves grace. I think showing ourselves grace in the process, because like, I think we can be really, really hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, like we hold ourselves to like this, like a really, really high standard. And like, sometimes we're even more like patient and generous with other people than we mm-hmm. are like with ourselves. 
Yeah. Self-compassion is, is key. I think that's what I'm hoping too with this podcast. I've always hoped that hearing other people saying, Hey, you're, you're not alone. You're not alone. It might you're seem that somebody else on the other side has it all together, that everyone is perfect, that you're the only one struggling with this. But believe me, there are far more similarities that unite us than our individual experiences that separate us. Totally. So thank you so much. It's an honor to be in your company and to share and for to have you share this story. Um, I hope those of you listening again, drew what you needed to draw from this story. And we thank you for listening. See you thank next you. time. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Sana Skin Studio. Be sure to use my code, the no glow for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via Sana Skin Studio com. More than a skin studio, Sana is a movement towards healthier skin and self-love. Thank you so much for listening to The Know. If you loved this episode, go ahead and share it with a friend. Words are so powerful and someone may need to hear what we covered today. And if you really loved this episode, please take a moment to rate the show and leave a review. Your comments are so important and valued, and they give other listeners insight on what to expect on The Know. You can connect with me personally via Instagram at Nikki Sap Spo and The Know with Nikki Spo. My hope for you today is that you are fearless in looking inward so that you can be your highest, most authentic self and go after the life of your dreams.